If you didn't get a handout on your way in, be sure to slip up your hand and Brother Tim in the back will bring you one. Just go ahead and slide up your hand. If you didn't get one, we'll bring one up to you. Make sure that you have a handout for tonight as we walk through Ecclesiastes. Now, I mentioned a couple different things. Good to see you all here at Pastor's Class as we walk through these weeks of Ecclesiastes and studying a book that oftentimes is misunderstood or uh, oftentimes I don't even know if when we read it, it's hard to even understand at all exactly what is meant in the Bible as you read these particular uh, verses. And so uh, one of the ways in which we try to help you walk through this is we provide just a book we would encourage you to read along that helps guide our time. We have these Christ-centered exposition commentaries. This is out of this one is on the book of Ecclesiastes and has uh, all kinds of uh, it's, it's really written in a readable format as a commentary. And so if you'd like to read along with it, now there's a special little bonus that I would like to mention in this commentary that we discovered today. So we're on chapter two, but if you own this book and or you get it, you will find that there's actually a story about our pastor that the guy tells in chapter three. So I don't even know if he knew it was in here until today. And so uh, the, the guy that wrote this book is friends with, our, with uh, Pastor, and, and uh, this is one of his stories uh, from back in the day. So it, all that just to say, I may have just increased the book sales a little bit, but <laughs> if you'd like to get it, uh, he'll probably mention it next week as he teaches on chapter uh, 3 next week. So each week we walk through uh, these few verses looking at uh, Ecclesiastes, and so today we'll be looking in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll be walking through uh, chapter 2 of the book. If you re recall, uh, the, this book is rightly understood by looking at the first few verses and the last few verses, and it is, uh, in a sense, uh, a walk through his logic and reasoning as he makes his point that all of life is meaningless apart from Christ. Apart from God, Life is meaningless, does not make any sense. So this book uh, brings us to, I think, some very real questions for us to deal with. And oftentimes, uh, as, you, as we look at this book, this is, particularly as you're sharing the gospel uh, with people and people that aren't believers, this book could actually be very helpful to address some of the concerns and the thoughts that a lot of times the world has. And so, uh, as we'll walk through the night in particular, we'll see some of that as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have your handout in front of you, if your Bible's open to the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd like to read a few verses and uh, just start by framing it one more time from chapter 1. I want to start with just a couple verses from chapter 1, open the question to make sure we're thinking rightly. The first couple of verses of chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and then here's, here's the big, big thematic question of the book, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And so as he looks at creation and life, as it's analyzed in particular apart from God, he sees this just pointlessness to it. What are we even doing here in 
this life. There's, there's no sense of full satisfaction given to anything that we try. And so, especially as we take our eyes off of him, notice, notice the last phrase, I think the pastor probably dealt with it last week, but he says, which he toils under the sun. And so in a sense, and this is what we'll do in chapter 2, it's everything that exists down here apart from God. In a sense of looking at all of his creation, but not looking at the creator. And so we see this oftentimes uh, happening in our world today, in which people begin to worship the creation and not the creator. And so I, I was thinking of, a, of, an, of an analogy that's actually happening happened right now in our culture. I was on Twitter this week, which is the place to find all kinds of interesting stuff. And there's a seminary, Union Theological Seminary is a fairly liberal, uh, man, they're, they're way out there. And you're going to see that just here in a second if you're familiar. I see a couple of you guys smiling, you may know what I'm talking about here. But they published this yesterday that they had had this um, particular service in uh, which they confessed their sins to plants. Not lying here. So I want, I want to, okay, first of all, here's the picture. This is a serious, uh, this is a, they really were doing this. And um, I want to read to you uh, what, what they wrote. They said, today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? I mean, that's the question. And what they do here, they end up explaining it. They say, in worship, our community confessed the harm we've done to plants, speaking directly into repentance. They spoke about a climate emergency and um, it says, far too often we see the natural world only as resources to be extracted for our use, not divinely created in their own right, worthy of honor, thanks, and care. Now again, the key words here, just to take this out, we don't, while we are thankful for the plants, we do not thank the plants. The distinction here is that the the act is directed toward the creation. And this, I mean, it was as clear as could be in this moment. And uh, this happens in a lot of different, more subtle and worldly carnal ways with people. But in particular, this was actual worship service that they held so that they might confess directly towards plants. This reminds me of Romans chapter 1. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. So, so in a sense of, this is exactly what's happening in the picture, but it's, it's much of what's happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a shift off of God himself who has created these things which we can enjoy to then looking just to those things for our satisfaction. That's the distinction here. So um, in so many ways tonight we'll look at a few of them. So there, there's actually three things in the chapter. So if you have, um, if you notice, if you've got a Bible there in front of you, I, I just want to help show you the outline. Most of you, if you have a Bible, you could probably see the headings. I'll read the headings from mine. 
I just want you to see them in the text. And you, you have it in your outline there, but you notice verses kind of 1 through 11 go together. And it, mine says the vanity of self-indulgence, or what we'll see here is, is pleasure. The idea of pleasure. So we're going to look at how pleasure is um, vain without God. Okay? So then the next one here is the vanity of living wisely or wisdom. So how is wisdom trying to be wise with your living vain apart from the Lord? And the third one here is the vanity of toil or work. Working is meaningless apart from the Lord. So in essence here, what's I want to, he doesn't make this point in the chapter, but I want to frame it this way that might be encouraging to you. As we walk through, we're going to, we're going to beat up pretty hard on all of these and say they're kind of wasted. But, but the idea here is not that all of it's bad. It's that if it is done solely apart from God, it is bad. If we're looking to our work to provide us there, but if we work to the glory of God, all of a sudden now our work is redeemed and no longer is it meaningless found in Christ. So let's take this Solomonic journey through these three areas as we walk through uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So if you have your first point there, uh, pleasure is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. So when we speak about pleasure, we're talking about the practice of what would be called hedonism. That, that's the idea of giving yourself whatever you believe brings you pleasure. Just seeking anything you might see as pleasurable, that's what you do. That's hedonism. Giving the heart whatever it desires. Now what's interesting, before we jump into it, um, the commentary talked about Tim Keller points out that it was only after he found life meaningless did he then plunge his life into seeking all of these pleasures. I think that's probably true of a lot of people is they find certain parts of life that just come to an end of meaningless. They feel like, every what's my point in life? So they begin to just throw themselves at whatever worldly pleasure they might be able to find. You know people like this that are just throwing themselves at whatever might be in front of them. It's because they found things to be meaningless. So let's look at chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with Pleasure. So there's the first. He wants to test with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But, but, but behold, this also was vanity. So he makes his declaration about the whole thing. So everything he's about to say, he says, it was a waste. So verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So notice this, this idea of laughter. It, it could even be pressed into saying amusement. Uh, it's, it's the idea of, you know, you just think about finding something funny. It's, it's putting your mind on amusing things to try to bring yourself some sort of satisfaction. I, I think about this as the world that continues to entertain itself by every sort of medium of TV and phone and social media and, you know, you get on top of some of you guys get on Facebook 
and you click on one video and they've got them queued up and the next video comes up and the next video and it's numbing. You ever notice you can, you can click that and then it's 30 minutes later. It, it kind of sucks you in. But what happens, your mind is numb for those few minutes, but then the minute that stops, reality's back. It, it, in other words, the entertainment, amusement part of life will never fully satisfy anyone. And a lot of people, when they have problems, they dive into that world to try to satisfy themselves. And oftentimes it works like a sugar rush when you eat a piece of candy when you're hungry. For a couple minutes you feel better, and then all of a sudden you come down because it was never meant to satisfy you. And so this idea of laughter, of pleasure, of amusing yourself, uh, in many ways, our entire culture, while they think nothing about spiritual matters is amusing themselves to death. Avoiding thinking about anything, just trying to have as much entertainment and pleasure that they possibly can find so they won't have to think about these spiritual realities. Now, amusement, laughter is not the only component here. Uh, Alistair Begg says he leaves the comedy club and he heads to the bar next. So verse 1 and 2, he wants entertainment. He wants, he's looking for it there. Look at verse 3. He goes to, to place it into alcohol. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly. So this is one of the, one of the uh, texts that might be a little bit confusing. There was some debate on how to interpret this. Some believe that when it says, I search my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom, they believe he never really just went out and just got full on drunk. Some people would say that. But then you have the second phrase that says, and how to lay hold on to folly. So people will say, well, when you say that, he went full on drunk. So at some point, whether he did that or not, he took alcohol and placed it in a place in his life, a substance that would alter his state of mind and made it a place he would try to find his utter satisfaction. So, so the point here is, whatever drug or mind-altering thing you might place in life, his point is, it will not satisfy. It, it only leads to folly. It's all vain. There's no point. Notice the profound end he's aiming for here, verse 3. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he's, he wants to know what's good to do while you live. I mean, that's, that's what he's trying to find in the midst of this. What is, it I, what is the purpose of my life? Is it found in just trying to make myself as happy and entertained and pleasurable as possible? Well, no. Is it, is it found in finding some sort of substance that will bring me some sort of joy or happiness that will carry me through? He says no. So then he turns to the pleasure of materialism. Notice the pleasure he looks for here. Look, look at verse 4. He said, I made great works. So the way he, was, he found pleasure, he said, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made, my, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he built big houses. And when I say big houses, I mean multiple houses. 
So the thought is, you, you, want, you want a big house and lots of them. He, he, in fact, if you look at Solomon, who is in the picture here, is there, there are still pools that Solomon built that are still around today. I mean, he, he built these expansive pools that he talks about in here. He made gardens and parks, vineyards. It's even, there's an illusion here. Look at, listen to the phrase. I made my, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Think about what that might be an allusion to. Right, the Garden of Eden. He, there's this allusion back to what he is trying to create full-on paradise for it. Now, now, just to make this clear, this was my point earlier, I'll make it again at this point, is that when they were in the garden, outside of one tree, God intended for us to enjoy the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's not wrong to enjoy a home. It's not wrong to enjoy the fruit of these trees. It's not, it's not wrong to enjoy some of these things. The problem comes is he has placed his heart on finding full satisfaction in his stuff. So, so again, he's, he's running through the gamut of what might satisfy him. Everything under the sun, apart from God, he said, look, I've, I've looked at, at um, whatever might entertain me and bring me some sort of laughter. I've looked at, at whatever might substance might make me happy. I've looked at whatever I can build to make me happy. And then he switches over. Notice um, it's not just building. He has, a lot of, he has a lot of money. He has a lot of stuff in the bank. So get the sense of, of the next few of his riches. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions. Hear that? Possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. See, he had all of this wealth and money. And then he had, he had a band too, right? I got singers, both men and women. So he got him some music. I mean, it, this was wealth for him. He, he thought that money would be the key to happiness. Now, um, to pause on this for possessions and things, I know we probably in this room, if we were to go around and say, do you believe money is the key to happiness? Most all of us would say, absolutely not. No, nobody's probably going to say that outright. However, it is very tempting in the heart, and if you struggle with this in some capacity, to set your heart on some sort of material possession. I've always, since I was a kid, I've always liked new things. I like getting something new, the excitement of taking it out of the box and having something new. It's, it's just been something, and, and for me, it's something I have to be careful about where my heart goes to to enjoy the new thing out of the box. And as you get older, you'll find what's, what's ironic about life is what one day was this brand new thing you loved in the box, um, a few years later, you're just throwing in the trash like it's nothing, right? Have I ever experienced that? Half the time it's electronic stuff and it only takes about six months for it to be out, right? You know, you buy something and whatever it might be, it's the latest technology, it's the nicest thing. Or at the time, you find this to be this really important possession. And then, ironically, years later, you find yourself just chunking it in the trash. It, it never was able to fully satisfy you. And so there's always this thought of one more, one more thing. 
There's the famous quote by uh, John Rockefeller, who by all intents and purposes, percentage-wise, was the richest American we've ever had. Uh, probably would have had comparatively four times the wealth of like a Bill Gates. And uh, the question was always posed to him, how much money is enough money? And his comment was, just a little more. Right? The, the heart, when placed on possessions, fails to be satisfied with enough. So again, I'm here not to tell you that you can't enjoy the home that you have. You can't enjoy sometimes when you get something new. But at the same time, those must be done with the understanding of who the Creator is and who the creation is. And I dare say for some of us that I know we kind of laugh at this moment where these plants are sitting in front of these people and it feels real absurd, but I bet the moment that some of us have some sort of material possession sit in front of us, it's tempting for our heart to begin to look at that particular thing instead of the one who gave us that thing. So again, I know that ultimately as Christians we may struggle a little bit with this, but the big picture here is a person who builds their life around these things. Their heart is set on these things. So one more thing that he even sought out, making sure there's no children when we read this one, right? So then he, he had many concubines to the, to the delight of the sons of man, right? So he's famous for having 700 wives and 300 concubines. So, so there's a sense at which for him, and in particular, I think in 2019, our culture is so driven and focused on these things, from TV to whatever you might watch, is the obsession over some sort of sexual activity. It is in everything we watch almost anymore, from the billboards and the signs. We've mostly become numb to what we see because of this obsession. And it's almost as if if you pursue these things, they will be fulfilling to you. And in particular, the point of any sort of sexual pleasure outside of the context of marriage is sinful and wrong, and in many ways will always leave you wanting more. Never satisfied. Never satisfied always leaves wanting more. So even his point here, in his pursuit with as much of that pleasure as he could find, it was all vain. So then let me read the last couple verses here of this section. Uh, so I became great. He said, I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, this is hedonism right here in this moment, I did not Keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So here he is, beginning to say, I've done all of this stuff, and in these moments, I, I didn't keep anything away from me. But then amazingly, look at verse 11. I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was just vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
So here he is. He's saying, I put every sort of desire in front of me and none of them worked. And I had every way to which I could put every desire. You may not have enough money or possessions to do it. He did. He could do all of those things and he said all of it was vain. So if you have, and you know somebody who wants to say, if I could just do blank, then my life would be fulfilled. The answer here is, no, it will not. No pleasure will fulfill you in this regard, making you happy. And so just one last thing I'll say that's interesting about our, the modern kind of way of thinking um, is that desire trumps everything else. The way they lay out Whatever you desire is absolutely right. Even down to, if your heart desires to be a different gender, then desire trumps biology. Again, catch that. It's, a very, it's the logic played out, right? If inside of you there is a desire for something else, whether it's biology or whatever it may, may be else, desire rules. And here's my whole point. Solomon gave himself every desire he could have possibly had all came up empty. Okay, so that's desire. Let's look at wisdom for a minute. So everything poured into this, whatever, whatever stuff he might have, it all came up empty. Wisdom is meaningless. So what he means here, when it comes to being uh, smart about all this, it's tempting to begin to think, you can figure, you say, well, Solomon, that way of thinking... You know, that's kind of old school. We got all kinds of new stuff today. I'm sure I can find pleasure today that you couldn't before, right? In fact, I'm often I was thinking about this earlier. If I see somebody trying to do something, I don't know if you guys have this problem or not, I'm just arrogant enough to think, ah, I could probably do that too, right? Or you see somebody, they're struggling to get something done, and I'm like, oh yeah, I could easily do that, right? And all it takes is about a minute for me trying, and I'm like, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought it was, right? So, he has this moment, he wants to say, look, I know you think you're a lot of stuff here and you can do something I haven't, but look at verse 12. He said, so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He said, for what can the man do who comes after the king? He says, only what has already been done. He says, you're not going to do anything I didn't already do myself. This is all that's already been done. You're not going to do anything new that trumps me, son. I've already, I, everything I have tried is covered by everything you might try. So he said, I've already done it. And oftentimes I think this particular warning you see in this particular verse, I think might apply to the teenager uh, mindset, right? You, you grow up, you get about 15 years old, and then all of a sudden you think you know better than everybody else on the planet of how to do things. And in that moment, there's this kind of like, I can figure out way beyond what any of the rest of you have figured out. It, it, it's, a, it's a thought of, hey, look, I'm going to do something new that you haven't done before. But there is some value in being wise, because wisdom is a, a helpful thing, right? We want to be wise people. So you say, well, shouldn't there be some value in making wise decisions? Look at what he says, verse 13. Then I saw there was more gain in wisdom than in folly. So it is better as there is more gain in light than in darkness. 
The person who has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So his point is that if you actually live a wise life and make good decisions, there actually is some benefit. But, he says, it all breaks down in the end. So you might say that being a wise person helps out, but look at verse 14. He says, the wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He says, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. In other words, they all die. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is vanity. He says, look, it doesn't matter how wise I am and how dumb he is and how much I strive. At the very end of it all, we all die. I can't beat this any better than he can. Think about it. People that lived 200 years ago, they're all dead, right? Whether they were wise or not wise, it all ends the same way. So if you don't, again, this is the natural conclusion. If you don't have a God or an eternal thought about anything that happens after life, why wouldn't you see this the same way? We're all just going to die. There's a sense without God and without the Lord Jesus Christ, a person should be absolutely hopeless in how it all pans out. No matter how hard you strive to be wise or not. Verse 16, for, the, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. In other words, no, nobody remembers either one. Seeing that in the days to come, it will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. And then he comes down, again, he says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I mean, what a, what a terribly depressive conclusion at this point, right? I hated life. So, here's why, just to take a short off-ramp for a second, and to, to make this point, um, this would be the natural conclusion of not being a Christian. And oftentimes we talk a lot about the promises of God. So, in a sense, we would say, if you come and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can have eternal and abundant life in Christ, right? You have this glorious hope and purpose and great renewed love of life, right? There's so much joy to be found in being a Christian. We can talk about all the positives. But on the other side of that is actually a pretty negative piece, right? Because if you don't come to faith in Christ, all this other stuff never shows up. If I don't come to faith in Christ, I don't have the joy of Christ. If I don't come and follow the Lord, I don't have this eternal hope. And so these conclusions here are natural, realistic, logical conclusions of not living a life following the Lord. These, these are right apart from Christ. Let's talk about work, and then we'll conclude here in a moment. The last one is, work is meaningless. Some of you have been thinking, you know, I've never heard anybody teach Ecclesiastes, and at this point you're probably thinking, well, now I know why. <laughs> not the most joyful happy book right but but i hope at least at this point there are people i can think of that this book speaks directly to their life their pattern where they're at this this is the path they're on 
So he says, since pleasure's not going to fulfill me, and since I can't just be wise and make this thing work right, he, and the final thing, he throws himself in, and he becomes a workaholic. He puts his identity in what he does. Well, we like to do this. We like to work hard, and we like to produce things. Uh, oftentimes, uh, particularly, I, th I think it for Americans, and for particularly our work, we place our identity in the work we do. So oftentimes, if you, if you see yourself because of what you do, that's your identity. If you have some sort of issue where you lose your job or have some sort of difficulty at work, it can be a major life-wrecking ordeal. Because we may have placed too much stock in our identity and our work. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, our work, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toil and used my wisdom and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over to all the toils of my labor under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also a vanity and a great evil. In other words, he's like, I'm going to work my tail off to get all this stuff, die, and somebody else actually gets to enjoy the stuff. He's saying, why is it that I work for all this stuff? Why do you work to just one day somebody else take it? And oftentimes, as you've seen this before, it, it, you know, wealth typically doesn't just keep going generation, generation, generation. A lot of times if wealth goes down one, happens right here with Solomon, uh, his son Rehoboam uh, will lose all of his stuff. Actually, the Jerusalem will be ransacked. They'll lose a lot of Solomon's wealth. It'll go one generation. And so his words here are actually quite right. That after he dies, Rehoboam will come along and then all of his stuff will be ransacked. So there's a sense of um, work and what you earn. Why bother? You're not, you're not taking it with you, right? So what is the point of all of our work? And notice even then, he says, well, work's hard, verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He says, this is, you know, you spend all these days working, and then sometimes your job is so stressful, you go home, you can't even sleep because you work so hard and you're so stressed about what's going on. You carry that job with you. It's, your shoulders are tight. Your neck hurts. You're worried about what's going on. And all of that presses in you. He says, what's even the point? It, here, here's the idea. Apart from having the purpose of glorifying God in the work that you do, why bother, right? There's a sense of, hopelessness even found in his work. So now let's end with um, a positive note, right? Let's try to bring this back up. Fourth point is contentment in God and his gifts is the meaningful life. You see, the problem with our stuff is that when we use it wrongly, it hurts us. In other words, 
the Lord has blessed us with a lot of things, but wrongly used, they're harmful. I'll give an analogy this way, tell a little story from my life. When I was, when I was nine years old, um, my family went to a small Baptist church. When I mean small, we had, um, I think we had about 50 folks on a Sunday morning. So this is massive compared to our Sunday morning right here. And uh, I remember, you know, a small Baptist church, things I remember when I was a kid. We had, we had one guy who would clip his fingernails in church. And uh, you would sit in the middle of church, you'd hear each one clipping off as he sat through church. Making the best use of his time, you know. And so, I used to small bad, small church, you know. And at the time, my mom was church secretary, so she would go up there and make copies and print stuff off. She did, did that. Uh, and so my mom went up to the church, and she was making copies. It was like a Friday. I don't know what day of the week it was, but they were heading towards Sunday, and she needed to get them ready, and it was icy outside. And so I was at the house with my sister. My mom went up there, and then my dad... Uh, who was handy and helpful, he went up there with her, and he was going around the church changing the batteries and the smoke detectors. And um, my dad had to change, it was the smoke detector right outside in the lobby, and it was up over the door face, so he had to change it. There weren't any ladders at the church. So what my dad did is he took a, he took a chair, and then he took a stool, and he stacked them up. So, and I don't mean, this is, I don't know if this is going to be a sad story or not. It's a positive story, but my dad fell. And uh, my dad's fine, he's alive today and all that. But he fell, hit his head, hospital for like 10 days, and, uh, you know, brain bleed, the whole thing. And uh, it was one of those, like, life-altering kind of things for my family. And uh, thankfully, just praise the Lord, he's preserved my dad's life all these years and felt very little effects uh, over the years from that actual fall and what happened. Um, but, but there's this little story from my family. The, the, the analogy, the illustration I'm giving is it can be really dangerous when you take things that were not meant to be used for that purpose and use them for that purpose. And the Lord has blessed you with a lot of stuff and he's given you a lot of things and there's a lot of things that bring pleasure in, the li in life and your work is a good thing. But when you start to use that to be the very thing that you worship and place your heart on, it's deadly. And I think Solomon's point here is all of these things are an absolute waste if they are the very thing you look for for your meaning in life. And so you have to learn to be content with what the Lord has given you. Look at verse 24. Notice he kind of switches. He says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So he admits there's something good about this. He says this also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Here's this moment. He says, look, pleasing the Lord, that's, that's where we begin to have meaning. He's giving a hint towards the end. What's... What's the purpose of life? Fear God, keep His commandments. He's starting to allude to this purpose of God as the only one who gives this. All of this other stuff is meaningless and hollow. So, so Christian, if I speak to you, though, the believers in the room, you should enjoy a good movie. 
If something makes you laugh, enjoy it. You should strive to make wise and right and good decisions and enjoy the benefit of them. If you, the Lord has blessed you with a nice home or a nice car or nice possessions, whatever it might be, enjoy those things. And you should work hard because God made you to work. But you should do it all looking at the one who made all of those things. Because you see, apart from God, there's no enjoyment in any of that. So I'm not here to tell you that all your stuff and everything you do should be miserable. You just, just hate all the stuff. You should love God who provides the stuff. Right? So there's a sense of, when they were sitting there looking at those plants, they should just thank God and not the plants. Right? That, that's the breakdown. So let me give you... Um, I'll give you four kind of practical, quick things to end tonight. They're real simple. How do you find a way to where your life is not meaningless? The first one's real simple. You just have to believe the gospel and be a Christian. You simply have to... The, the first step is professing faith in Christ so that He is now your meaning. So here's some, just as I dive down below that, practical. Second, you ought to be very thankful to God for what He has given you. So every time you sit down, and I know you pray before a meal, but when you sit down, you ought, there's a level at which that meal in front of you ought to bring your heart to thank God for it. So when you lay your head on that soft pillow tonight, don't just be focused on the pillow, but be thankful that God gave you the soft pillow to lay your head on. In, in other words, all those blessings and gifts of your life ought to drive your heart to be thankful. So, so that's how you take these things and they have meaning. So when you go to work, work for the glory of God. With all you have for His, for His honor and for His glory. And then all of a sudden that work that seems meaningless is now meaningful because it's for Him. And so then we do it, we, we thank Him for it, and then this is the part that I was pressing to there. Third, we use these things for His glory. In other words, uh, Jesus with the parable of the unrighteous steward, he'll say, you know, there's this guy who manipulates and connives with money that when he gets fired, he's got a bunch of friends, and he's able to make, get a new job afterwards. And he says, if that crooked guy can use his money to get a new job afterwards, he says, why can't you Christians use your money for the gospel? If that kind of terrible guy knows how to use money for his own good, why can't you use money so that people will come and worship me? So it ought to be a sense of that the very gifts you've been given, that you know the way they have meaning, is that you use them for his glory. So how are you using what God has given you for his glory? How, when you go to work, is it for his glory? How is it then when you, when you use your home, is it for his glory? the possessions, the money, whatever it may be that God has blessed you with, how is it for His glory? And the last one, I'll just say this, and I, I added this one, this is my fourth one, um, that I think we miss oftentimes, it's not bad to enjoy it. Now, if you just try to enjoy it, apart from the rest of those things, you probably, that, that's Solomon. That's the idea there. But at the end of the day, when you have given glory to God, and when you are thankful for what is in front of you, 
just like was in the garden before sin had corrupted it all, the Lord intended for us to enjoy His creation. It's not a, it's not a sinful thing to enjoy what God has given you. It's just a sinful thing to enjoy apart from Him. To make it the object of your worship. So, so this is where you should have freedom under all of this to enjoy what God has given you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'd like to do this tonight as we conclude. Uh, I'd like to every once in a while pray for somebody we know that's not a Christian. I'd like, I'd like for you to think of someone in your life that you know fits Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tonight. Someone you know that might be living a life that's pursuing pleasure apart from the Lord. They're not a Christian, and they are giving their life over to a job and work to satisfy them, over to possessions and money, over to some sort of drug or alcohol, over to some sort of pleasure that might be found in this world. You, you know that's where they've invested their life. Just right now, pray that the Lord would open their eyes to the folly of their ways and allow them to see the great reward that Christ is. Let's just in your mind right now and quiet, just pray for them right now. Lord, we thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who are Christians here that are followers of you, we thank you for the great reminder of what little hope we have apart from you. That how grateful we ought to be that we are saved, that you have given us this renewed hope in life, and you've taken the ways in which sin has corrupted and made it to where we can enjoy what you've created again. God, may we worship you in all that we do. May you take our hearts off of any sort of creation that is, sits in front of us that we tend, to, we tend to trust for our um, satisfaction. And may we place all our desire on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him to satisfy us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your great hope of your word. Well, we pray for these individuals here the night that we... We thought about and we prayed for that we know we're out there hopelessly giving their life to something that is a waste. Lord, we pray right now they would find the end of that rope. They would understand the folly of their ways. And Lord, you would open their hearts and their eyes to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They might turn from their sin and turn to Christ and be saved. Lord, we ask you to do that work in their hearts and their lives tonight. Lord, give us opportunity to speak this great hope to them so they might turn to you and place their faith in you. Lord, we thank you for our time together in the Word tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.